You're listening to the December 7th Joy of Preparedness podcast with Richard Ruge and Skip Gerrals. And we're talking today with these really amazing people from the Sonoma County Humane Society. They have really great information for all of us to be able to deal with our animals or the animals of those people that we know and love or the animals that we might run into in our neighborhood if and when an emergency might happen. And they'll be introducing themselves in just one moment. Well, I'll go first. I'm, my name's Don, Don Malone. I'm with the Sonoma Humane Society. I've been uh, with the Humane Society for quite a while. I've been 20, 29 years. Wow. Started out as an animal control officer, worked my way up to state humane officer, shelter manager, and now I'm director of operations and uh, enjoy what I do. Hi, my name's Beth Karzis. I'm the humane education coordinator with the Sonoma Humane Society. Hmm. I've been working there for um, almost 11 years now. All right. Hi, I'm Katie Aho. I'm a board member at the Humane Society. And I'm also representing all the pet owners out there. Right. Very good. So we'll need to get you a little bit closer to the mics. Um, we have a little gauge here that we can see. Yeah, a little bit. That, that's great. That's perfect. Okay. Let's, let's start off with some questions. How can people prepare their pets for emergencies? What do you recommend? Um, I think some of the most important um, aspects is when you do an emergency preparedness for your families, for your human family, you always include your animals. And so you have to inc- include water, food, medicine in that emergency kit for that pet as well. Um, so and, and in addition to that, one of the biggest things is you want to train your animals to be prepared. And that could be through simple dog training so that when there is an emergency, you have control of that dog when you really need it, not just for uh, good manners out in the public. Um, Getting used to being in crates because if you're going to be traveling um, and crating them or if they're going to be sheltered, they're going to have to be contained in some sort of crate. Um, Those are – that's a beginning step. There's, There's more that we'll discuss here this morning as well. Good. Yeah. Let's get into the history of animals in disasters. What is traditionally, what traditionally happens with owners and pets? Well, I think that just really depends on the disaster. You know, my experiences through the years, uh, we've had floods, which have, have caused people to have to evacuate and, and leave with their pets or stay with their pets, depending on their situation. Um, we've assisted the public by taking in their pets during times of disaster and holding them while the disaster is occurring until it ends. Um, working with the other shelter, the Sonoma County Shelter and Rotor Park Shelter, um, and sometimes even veterinarians will take in animals during times of disaster. That's a pretty limited number of animals that you can take in, though, right? That's true. You know, at the Humane Society, we probably could probably, you know, max maybe take 20, 30 dogs mm-hmm. and maybe up to 50 cats. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, when Chomps, you're moving a city like Guerneville, that's a lot of animals, you know. So I remember the one time we, we housed animals, we filled up, the county shelter filled up, and then they started using little um, hospitals or boarding facilities to, to hold animals during the, the flood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So staying at home with your animal, I mean, is that what, how's that? If, if you can, but if, you're, if you need to leave because the emergency forces you to do that in your neighborhood, um, 
you want to have that emergency kit and all the supplies with you. So you want to have your animal to have name tags. You want to have photos of your animals, whatever um, microchip or city or county licensing. You want to have those numbers because you're going to need a record of that to prove and help track your animal if they have to be placed in a shelter or if you get separated from that animal. Mm -hmm. You want to have leashes. So I know mm -hmm. if you kennel a dog, I know that you have to provide proof that they've had shots and different right. things. Is that the same case in yeah. an emergency? I think it helps just to have that. Um, so if you have a current vaccination copy of the receipt or the the certificate of your vaccinations to have that. I have a folder in my car with all of those documents that I just described so that um, I could easily have access to them on the road, so to speak, if you don't have access to your home anymore. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned something like a, a pet emergency kit. Yes. I mean, it sounds very similar to, you know, like a go kit or something like that for mm -hmm. individuals and their families. So can you sort of maybe go back through that a little bit more? Yes. Um, Current photos that um, and flyer. Maybe you, you, I suggest make a pre-made flyer. So sometimes you see lost flyers. If you kind of have one pre-made that um, hmm. has the animals' names, That's a good idea. their mm -hmm. breed, their age, if they're spayed and neutered, and their sex, any unique features. If it's a three-legged dog, or if it's you know got that one spot in a one location. Um, what type of collar? If it's leather or cloth. Um, you know, so, the, if a, the dog is a special needs dog, like diabetic or right. any medical issues, mm -hmm. you should include that in the flyer too. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. you want to make it somewhat easy, um, and but but have enough information so that um, if imagine if there's a large emergency as we're talking, there's going to be a lot of these flyers. So you want to make it with the information user-friendly. Mm. That's a great idea, though. I mean, to, to take that information and use it, at, to set it up as a flyer mm -hmm. in the first place. I mean, an easy way, an easy form to be able to track that, track that information. Right, and have maybe even, you know, the city that it's licensed with, because if they still have their tags on them, if somebody finds them, they can, mm -hmm. um, it'll be documented. Mm -hmm. You don't want to give out too much information, like you don't want to put the microchip number on, because sometimes you don't want your dog or cat, obviously, to get stolen and have that information go to somebody else. So you, mm. you keep some stuff confidential, mm. but you have that in that kit so right. that you can... So you can, can can give that information when you need to. Right. Right, right. So if you ever see a poster with my picture on it, <laughs> <laughs> you will turn me in, right? I mean... <laughs> More than likely. <laughs> One of the things that happened uh, during the Napa earthquake is... Uh, a staff member of becoming independent realized they needed to keep a leash and you mentioned a leash and a muzzle uh, by the bedside as well as shoes and gloves underneath the un underneath the bed so uh when a disaster happens they get the pets get skitterish as well as people right so extra leashes crates get your animal used to being a crate crate train them prior i mean that's good animal care Anyway, yeah. With. So right. when um, they're stressed, you want them to be used to something somewhat familiar. So a crate with bed, bedding, um, litter, litter box. You know, you could just use a cardboard case or like from a beer case or soda case to use as a makeshift litter box. But you do need those 
items, plastic to pick up waste, plastic bags to pick up waste, um, shoe toys, anything that would relieve stress for your pet. So whatever they mm-hmm. like to chew on, um, which, you know, dogs really need to chew. Cats have toys, too, that help them relieve stress. We have um, a, called a thunder shirt for dogs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a wrap that's really tight, kind of like swaddling a baby, and it's Velcro. And so when there's thunderstorms or the 4th of July, we put them on some dogs. Now, in emergency, you can imagine the stress level is really high. So if your pets already have that anxiety to begin with, having one of those thunder shirts in this kit will really help because your dog's going to, their pet's going to be really, have some separation anxiety perhaps because they could be any bit where they could be lost or mm-hmm. just traveling mm-hmm. away from their normal routine. Yeah, just mm-hmm. taken out of the home. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. So is that a, a manufacturer? Do you guys have those only, or is that a manufacturer? No, you can item? buy them. We purchased them online. They're called Thunder Shirts. I think even Western Farm Center sells them. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, great. And what you said is muzzle, too, is really important because if an animal becomes injured, um, you know, your own pets could end up biting you just because, you know, they could have a broken arm and you're trying to pick them up and get them to safety. So a muzzle and a makeshift muzzle like a rope or a stocking or a gentleman's tie. Shoestring. Yeah. That right. prevents them from, you know, biting yeah. when they're in the moment of that. Right, right. Of that pain until they. Right. We need you to still be a little bit closer. You can, and you can turn it towards you if you want. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to lose what you're what you're saying. Um, go ahead. Yeah. I when we talked previously, um, I gave you my business card, and on my business card, I have a plan for neighborhoods, and I realize that I need to put uh, create a, a shelter. I would. I would recommend that if you can shelter within your neighborhood, that's the best thing to do and not plan on going to a shelter yourself. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that? The golden rule that's been learned from a lot of the national emergencies across the country with Katrina is um, keep your pets with you. Try to prepare as much as you can to always keep your pets with you. So... um, so, right, so if you can stay in your neighborhood, you would keep your pet with you. If you have to leave, leave in enough time so that you can keep, keep your pet with you wherever mm-hmm. you go, wherever you stay. But, yes, neighborhood um, makeshift shelters. And a lot of us were talking about, if, if any of our audience knows about um, the neighborhood groups that we mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. What it, Map your neighborhood and cope. Those are two programs, right? right. And the one that I participated in, you know, identify certain neighbors that have certain skills or supplies that can assist with childcare, animal care, mm-hmm. and they can set up based with their skills yeah. and supplies. Cooking. <laughs> it's, yeah. That's very important. So it seems it seems as though that that wouldn't be that difficult to do to create a makeshift shelter. You probably we already have shelters in each of our neighborhoods. We just need to designate where the, where the shelter is. One of the things that we did when we were planning out our neighborhood is on our call list for all the neighbors we included, if they had pets, what type of pets they had, um, medication, special needs for pets, and then all of the pet owners have agreed that their yard is a place that you could go to take a pet if you need to. Mm. So we kind of have set pet mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that sounds really important. It's, it's something that the Map Your Neighborhood d- doesn't actually talk about yet. We're going to talk about it, I think, now in the future because we've had these conversations. We don't actually address that in the forms. Yeah, and the two two people who set it up in our neighborhood both are pet owners, so right. that's why we included that. Right, right. Yeah, and you have a very active neighborhood anyway. I mean, your yeah. group has actually been very active anyway. So to be able to get to that level of concern to take into consideration the animals. You know, another thing we have a medical emergency in our neighborhood with an elderly person and she did not have a pet but that's one of the things that we talked about because we do have a lot of elderly people in our neighborhood is should something happen to them that we also have our pet call list so someone could go and care for her pets Mm -hmm. because I know Mm -hmm. that that my neighbor has gone to the hospital a few times and she always sends the fireman over to get me to Mm -hmm. care for her pets so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's another thing to consider yeah well, the the yard idea sounds really good if you if you're if you're still in your neighborhood. But so we talked about like putting your pets in a in a crate of some time. Like we have a little traveler like to take the cats to the vet that sort of situation. But they obviously need more room also, right? So is there a size that would make sense for a certain pet? If like if I wanted to create something, do I need ten by ten or fifteen by fifteen? Or I mean, I think if dog runs, you know, I mean they really need to be out. But if they can't be out and the, and you don't want them to stay in a little, you know, that smaller container, is there some size that would make sense? I I think it would be whatever that neighborhood has the means. I mean, it's going to be limited by how many houses were destroyed or cars were destroyed and what what you're working with. Um, That being said, and and then how do you divide up the space for the individual animals? Um, Does somebody have some exercise pens, which are used at shelters a lot, and some people do in their homes, some Mm -hmm. people don't. Um, They help divide or just grabbing some plywood Mm -hmm. and some Mm -hmm. bricks and making a makeshift version Mm -hmm. to have Mm -hmm. some separated areas so the animals can, you know, eat separately and you can kind of manage it. Right, right. How big is that exercise pan? I mean, oh, they come in variety of sizes and heights, and that's another thing. Um, you have to make it safe so that if you have um, an animal that's an escape artist or just very energetic and can easily jump out, jump out. <laughs> um, that's why it does help, like Katie said, when you get to know the pets in your neighborhood, get to know your mm-hmm. neighbors and their pets, and be mm-hmm. prepared for their personalities. Mm-hmm. But, I know the Humane Society has tie-downs. Well, I was just going to say, we, we prepare in just that case where we had to pull animals out quickly, and we had to secure them maybe temporarily for a period of time, we use tie-downs. And the tie-down can be three to, you know, three to four feet with two clips, and mm-hmm. you can clip them onto a cyclone fence. Uh-huh. Just some place where the animal can be secured, can stand up, can sit down, can walk around. Um, those are really kind of a cool thing to have, especially you can easily put in your kit. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to run real quick, you may not be able to take your portable pin, but at least if you had your kit, you would have something to tie the animal down with. Hmm. Hmm. Are there, there are other things that families can do to be prepared themselves to, to uh, assist their pets? Any, well, I know if, if you take first aid, a lot of it applies to pets. So if your pet's injured, I imagine you would wrap or take care of a broken leg the same way you would a person. So I think just thinking mm-hmm. about first aid emergency things that you could use for yourself as well as your pet mm-hmm. would be a good idea. Mm-hmm. When One thing we hadn't talked about at home that we went, oh, yeah, 
is when you think about how much water you're going to need, include your mm-hmm. pets because mm-hmm. your pets are going to need fresh water as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually one of those places where maybe what you would contain in um, something that you might not want to drink yourself necessarily, you know, but you might be able to still use for your pets, or maybe you distill the water in the same way so that then you would have that, have, um, you know, good potable water for your animals Mm -hmm. at the same time. Um, So I actually was curious, though, about like what, what people can do. We've already talked about some things that people can do to to actually be prepared for their pets. But if an animal is injured or really freaked out in some way that maybe I'm not used to with that particular animal, I mean, I would would assume that I would also need to understand how do I handle an animal that is really, really distressed. I mean, ways to be able to cope with an animal that's maybe well beyond anything that's the normal day-to-day. And as well as... And, and my neighbor's animal, like if my neighbor animal, neighbor's animal is all freaked out in some way, is there something that I could do to learn or prepare to, to be able to deal with that? One of the, well, to learn is take dog training class, take uh, animal behavior class. Um, that would just be helpful in general so that mm-hmm. you're less stressed during that anxious period and you can think more clearly to help the animal. I, I want to interject one thing. When you take an animal training class, it's more about training you how to deal with the animal. So I think that's yes, good advice. Katie's <laughs> absolutely right. Um, they're training the, the owner, the handler. Right. Um, so that helps for this situation. Um, but I think having a muzzle, having uh, one of the basic things, and Donald, I think, could really add on because he was an animal control officer dealing with animals and strays is I, I have a blanket or a towel so when you want to get an animal one thing you can do is put a towel or a blanket over their head and you reduce their um, exposure to stimuli so that mm. just helps them calm down mm. that's just one simple thing if it's your own animal and my animal was hit by a car I'd probably throw a towel over them just so I could calm them down to pick them up so they don't bite me and mm-hmm. get them to the veterinarian mm. Mm. but that's just one of many I mean there's <laughs> well, you know, years of animal control, there's there's a couple don'ts you don't want to do with uh, an animal that's scared and frightened. You don't want to try to grab them because uh, chances are you're going to get bit. Uh, you want to approach an animal. You don't want to chase it. Um, you want to approach slow. You want to ideally crouch down. You want to stare at it directly, kind of off to the side, talk sweetly to it. Um, you know, there's a good chance that it can respond to that and it will come to you. Um, the last thing you want to do is just scare it more. Um, but there, understand, you may not be able to catch every animal. Um, there's a lot of little tricks, treats. If you have little treats, you know, start giving them treats. Um, that helps calming them down and, and you know, also start befriending them. Um, but there's little tricks. You can put a leash. You know, if you have a leash and you have a circle around the leash, you put it up on your arm, and if you can get close enough to start petting the animal, you're petting the animal, you slowly bring the leash around off your arm and then onto the animal, and you can, and you can capture them that way. But it's it's just, a, you know, it's a it's just go slow. You don't have to go fast. That's the, probably the best advice I can give you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So keeping treats handy. Very, very, very yeah. important. Yeah, very important. So, so this is also with animals that are that just run through your yard you've never seen before. Never seen before. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's going to happen. Um, and again, in your neighborhood, know your if you can, know your pets. You know that are around there. And, and uh, I think Beth spoke about you know 
setting up that neighborhood program, and when you get that information out, you know, what's the name of the pet? So I can find out what the name of my the, the animal is three doors down, and so when I can approach them, I can call them by their name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Having that information is vital. Who would... A couple things. I hope that you talk about the various programs that you have at the Humane Society. And if I wanted to be trained, who do I contact? Yeah, um, if you go to SonomaHumane.org, it's our website. And we offer a variety and a great many of dog training classes from beginning puppy all the way to more advanced classes. on the evenings and on the weekends under um, our dog training and behavior and training department. Um, you would need to bring a dog. Oh, oh. <laughs> so you do kind of need a dog or sometimes oh. you can. You know, but you can also um, join a friend. If a friend um, or use a friend's dog, if you know you have or a family member's dog, um, any a variety of dogs always need improvement with training. Right. <laughs> it's a never-ending. Um, and other programs that we have at the Humane Society. We have a great rescue and adoption. We have a spay and neuter program for the public. We have a public medicine hospital. That's awesome. People own their pets and they can make appointments. Um, we have grooming. We have a grooming salon business and Stephanie, uh, the groomer, is awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Only for pets. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have um, an outreach program where we're in the community um, doing adoption outreach and and other the events in the community always invite the humane society to participate so we're often in the community at variety of holiday seasonal type of events Um, we have a great youth humane education program we offer programs for children and teens to participate and learn about animal care and the field of animal welfare and is that something that's just available at the humane at the office there or do you take that on the road i know you do you, you take things on the road you personally, when you go out and do some of the trainings, like you came to CERT, you came and talked to us at the CERT group yeah, about I, pets. Yeah, I think um, a lot, if, if we're invited by a, a community um, program, then yes, we, we do a lot of all that outreach that I spoke about. Those are all at the fair or, or businesses or PetSmart or parades. Um, and then, yes, we yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I know you take that. You know, which yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's important for people to be able to know that if if there was a group, you know, or an, or an area or something like that. And I know you have a busy schedule, but people could at least get you to reach out to them possibly and put it on a schedule that you might come and bring the, the pertinent information. But they also can come to the Humane Society with some of the some of the classes are are on a schedule. Yes. Right. So you have them there at the Humane Society itself for behavior and training for dogs. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a list actually. There is. Just exactly where are you located? Um, We're at fifty three forty five Highway Twelve West in Santa Rosa, about five miles west of Highway One Hundred One. Closest cross street is Lano Road. <laughs> on, on 12, right? Yes. Right, right. And there's a big tin dog. <laughs> to, yeah, there happens to be a big tin dog out front, which isn't quite as shiny as it used to be. <laughs> How long has it been there now? This is like well, it's been there since we opened, so it's about, about eight, ten years. Wow. Yeah, that's, With a new building we opened. Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Yep. So, so if there's an emergency and I find this animal in my yard and I am able to capture it, through my training, um, who do I contact to, to come pick it up, or do I keep it? 
Well, I think you, you definitely would contact the Sonoma Humane Society, and from there they can determine if it can be picked up and take that information. So if somebody's looking for it, we can reunite. would be ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would be definitely a contact first. And is, is like, social media, is, I mean, if I took a picture of it and either emailed it to you or something like that, I mean, is that, is that helpful? Is that something that people could anticipate doing? Oh, sure. You know, I think if it powers up and we're running, yeah, that's, right. that's right. definitely thing. i got to say, for social media, it was really interesting during the uh, um, Napa earthquake is I immediately got on social media and was able to contact the uh, Napa Humane Society to determine how they were doing. And it was instantaneously, within a little bit of time, I found out, you know, that they were okay, that the building survived. And mm-hmm. I think that's really neat. And that they were able to post, you know, what, what their situation was and what they needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, it's so big. I mean, I it's, don't think any of us, or at least I don't, know how to tap it completely. Right. I mean, everybody's talking about different ways of being able to tap it, but that's one way, right. you know, right there is being able to get, if it's up and running, yes. and if they can access it from their end, to be able to get the information um, information that way. I mean, I was concerned that same thing is, is that if you, if you did come upon an animal and you were lucky enough to be able to work with it, you know, what do you do? So, I mean, so contacting the Humane Society is one one thing and then being able to get the characteristics of the dog if you can't take a picture you know something about the characteristics so then you might be able to find that yeah because the owner could be calling us saying i've lost my pet right and, you know. right right but and then ultimately to bring if if that owner isn't found then i'm going to bring that pet to you is that what's going to happen yes okay okay and then you're going to deal with contacting that or finding that person do you have like lengths of time that you're willing to do that with critters or what's the well, yeah, you know, we, we hold them for a stray time. Mm-hmm. You know, def, definitely there's there's up to seven days we hold them for a stray time, and then we evaluate them for our adoption, and then we put them into adoption. Great, um, great. But, you know, we work with the other shelters, too, notifying them. Um, so they, they have information on that. So we mm-hmm. do everything we can. We do posts on Facebook. Um, people can contact us when they're missing their pet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And perhaps maybe during an emergency, those straight those hold times would be extended because we know that someone may be displaced out of their home. Mm-hmm. Like when we uh, for Katrina, you know, uh, the the hold times were a long time before any animals were adopted out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Right. it's going to take everybody so much longer to come back. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What if the dog was adopted out? And the owner shows up. Yeah. Uh, what? Has that, ever that that did happen. It's happened. Yeah. It's happened. Um, it's you know hopefully the it can be tricky. You know, to be honest with you, it's right. getting back to the person that's adopted them, and notifying them that you know we have an owner, and uh, you know hopefully we can work it out. And we've where it's happened, whereas the people relinquish the pet back to the owner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's ideal. Yeah, and I think it actually happened with Katrina. Yeah. The Katrina pets. Where, yeah, well, they went all over. Yeah, yeah, they did. And it took them a while to finally figure out where their pet was, you know. And it, they weren't transferred to other states, were they? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, all we, over the we took them. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. We got 30. And a lot of states took, you know, whatever their shelter in that particular state. I know wow. Texas got a lot. Wow. And I've got colleagues across the country in Wisconsin, Michigan, wow. New York, that their shelter took in 30 to 50 Katrina mm. dogs. Mm. But that's a huge, I mean, that yeah. could potentially happen to us if we have that big earthquake that they always mm-hmm. right. say. Mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah. So, again, it's important for identifying the pet. And a microchip is ideal because mm-hmm. it's, it's identifiable. Because a lot of those Katrina pets were not 
that you know right. were not shipped and or had any information. So trying to prove you know state away you know your pets in another state that's my animal mm-hmm. can be kind of difficult mm-hmm. if you don't have it. Identification. I think that's um, it's a really interesting point because the the people that I've talked to that are concerned about using the chip is they don't actually th- think look deep enough, you know, as, to, as that it might shorten the length of time that their animal could come back to them if right. something were to happen. You know, they don't actually get that. It's like okay, I don't want something implanted in my animal, and there's these other sort of the initial resistance to doing something like that is what I've heard from people. So I, I think that's really a great point. I mean, if what if your animal happened to be shipped to Texas of all places, um, you know what? How long would how long might it take if you only have a paper trail as compared to a chip, right. which would be like fairly instantaneous? Yes. Well, probably if it had a chip, it wouldn't have been shipped in the first place. Yeah. The, the mm-hmm. one problem I know we run up against with chips is that people don't keep the information current. Uh-huh. So I know when you adopt a dog, you get the information on how to update that information. So I hear that at the shelter quite often is that, yes, the dog is chipped. We call the number. It's a non-working number. Or ah. yeah. And it's really simple to update your information. It's either calling the manufacturer or going on their web page. But a lot of people, you know, they give their pet away, and the people that take on the new pet don't update it with their information. So it can be a lost trail. Well, uh, people get lots of different cell phones. Right. Think of how many different cell phone numbers you've individually had. Mm-hmm. I just had a, you know, currently update ours because all our old cell phone numbers don't exist anymore uh-huh. <laughs> so right, we, you right. know, there could be a five or ten dollar charge from the microchip company or some of them do it for free mm-hmm. um, so that's something that 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 they would have to do themselves yes. i mean you do that as the owner you have to either go to the manufacturer to do that it's not like to this humane society no. or anything it's Once to the manufacturer of the chip that was used mm-hmm. who puts the chip in a vet mm-hmm. yes okay okay so that vet's not going to track that information either uh, so i don't know anything about chips what does it look like? Does it hurt? Uh, could my wife use one? Yeah, yeah, right. For me, yeah. My, uh, microchips are um, about the size of a long piece grain of rice, uncooked, um, and they're coated in a little plastic. And they get a shot like they do a vaccine, but it's a little bigger needle, not much, right at the neck between the shoulder blades, where cats and dogs have that extra scruffy skin and hair and it goes just right underneath the skin and um it's a universal location so that no matter who puts it in or who's ever looking they're always looking in that general area mm-hmm. it's not like one vet in in florida puts it in their leg no it's always right, universal right, right. and it stays there mm-hmm. um it has a number and then you register that number with the owner with mm-hmm. the animal's information. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people mistake and think it's a GPS device. It's not. It doesn't tell you where the animal is. Um, if the animal is found, Good Samaritans bring the animal to a veterinarian or a shelter, and they have a scanner, and they scan, and they look for a chip. Mm-hmm. Whenever an animal comes to us from a Good Samaritan, um, we're always scanning. Mm-hmm. And then a number pops up. We call that microchip company or go on their website, and we find out, who the current owner is of that animal and we contact them and we say spot is here mm-hmm. are you missing your dog mm-hmm. give a description mm-hmm. so all that information is there's just a number that resides in the chip itself and then the information is held just online somewhere mm-hmm. with that uh, microchip company uh, uh. and they have they have the the owner's information and the animal's information right right huh. w- will there be a gps someday 
you know, they do have them out there, but they're rather expensive, and, and shelters don't put them in. So when, when meaning when you adopt from a, a shelter, most shelters, their animals are spay and neutered, vaccinated, and microchipped. Mm-hmm. And it's that basic mm-hmm. microchip that I just explained. Mm-hmm. But not at the GPS. Is there a concern for the GPS? I mean, I just, well, they're expensive, expensive for one. They're expensive. Yeah. They're really, really expensive. Yeah. Sure. yeah, well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. <laughs> it would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> it would be very cool. You could, you could track your dog. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Can you get an app for yes. that? Yes. Yeah, there is an app. Yes. yes. Dogs yeah. and you know, and I couldn't say that in 10 years that could be an option, you know, yes. with, 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 with technology. technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so I'm seeing more and more, like I've been involved with disaster preparedness for 15 years or so, and we and pets is, has not been an issue. It's not on my business card. It's, it's now going to become on my business card. And, and we want to support, our organization wants to support people preparing their pets, and Map Your Neighborhood is going to start doing that more aggressively. How is the Humane Society working with other organizations in Sonoma County to prepare for disasters? Well, throughout the years, we, we, we get together with um, the, the local shelters and with REVMA, the Redwood Empire Medical Association. They're kind of the lead uh, for the local uh, community for, for disaster preparedness. Um, you know, we just get together probably on an annual basis just to discuss, um, you know, new ideas, planning, preparedness. Um, we, the shelters get together and we talk about, you know, you know how we could help in times of uh, disaster for their area. Is, is there – oh, and, go ahead. And Don and I took the local CERT um, course as Humane Society representatives. I'm with another colleague at work and um, – I took the local Sebastopol Police Citizens Academy, and that did help just kind of understand how all the public service agencies work together on daily and, and some emergencies. And then um, Don and I also took the ham radio licensing. Mm-hmm. So we have a board member who has ham radio equipment. So hopefully the Humane Society's goal is to have a ham radio at our location. That's great. So That's that great. If, you know, all this technology fails us in a true emergency, we still have communication with the county. and. Mm-hmm. Sheriff and other right. important, and as with the cert group, you know, I mean, there's there are ham operators in in all locales, right. and we certainly have a group, a very strong group in Sebastopol. So even being able to connect at that level, mm-hmm. you know, down at the at the community level, um, I think that you had said um, Redwood Empire Medical Association, but it's actually the red, isn't it the Veterans Association? Veterinarian. No, veterinarian. Oh yeah, it's a veterinarian. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so d- there's. Is there a lot happening at the county level to work with these agencies, to support the agencies in, in this kind of work? Not so much lately. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not sure why that is. But, um, you know, one time, you know, when we were having, like, these annual floods, it mm-hmm. seemed to be more we were gathering, we were meeting on a more constant basis. But since, um, you know, it really hasn't happened too much. Um, OES, you know, they've had a, <clears throat> a few meetings involving us, but not, not too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the way for us humans, right, is, yeah. is if it, there's not anything big happening it's it, it goes down on the priority list seems to be yeah yeah i think that's we, we run into that on all levels of this i think so the sonoma humane society we're doing our best to keep prepared um, mm-hmm. like best says you know getting different training getting the ham radio license you know just 
within our house, I guess, keeping us ready and prepared for the future, right. you know, for anything that can come our way. Well, I really admire what you guys are doing for one, because I think it's 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 sort of the way that we talk to people is you have to be prepared in your, your, yourself and in your own place, in your own neighborhood. You know, right. we talk about that, and I think you guys are doing that as well as in the community of Sebastopol. I mean, I don't know what else you do as far as like reaching out into to um, Santa Rosa, but I know that at least in Sebastopol, you guys have a, a strong presence, including when you've taken the different courses. I think we were in the traffic mm-hmm. one also together, and you actually had just to sort of make a little jump out of the pet situation, but you had an instance of actually being able to use that traffic, a little bit of the traffic training, right, Beth? Right. Well, um, follow-up to the CERT class, they also, they offer um, workshops, and one of them was um, how to stop traffic or do traffic control in emergencies. So there was just an incident. Me and my husband were walking our dogs um, in our neighborhood on a Sunday evening, and um, a dog came out of nowhere and attacked us. And um, in the middle of my husband trying to get the dog off of our other dog and trying to retrieve the dogs that um, got away from us in that attack. We were on this bend, and there was a lots of traffic, and it's amazing how many people just drive right by. <laughs> so I, I just jumped in the gear, and I actually used that just to stop local traffic in a residential street. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband and dog were in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. Um, my other dogs were loose because I'd, they'd been knocked out of my hand, and I didn't want them to get hit. I retrieved them, so I stopped traffic, and it gave me the confidence to feel like I had the authority to do that. That's really what it gave me, because some people just looked at me like, who are you to tell me what to do? And I'm just, well, there's an incident, and you don't, I don't want you to run over these people that are in the, in the street right now. Right, and then right. when the police finally showed up, he just blocked the street with his vehicle, so nobody could even... But yeah, I used it, and it was it was good to have. Yeah, well, I, what I, what I get from what you're talking about, which is I think is something we talk about all the time, is is that the the training or the education gave you confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, not only did you feel like you had the authority to be able to do that in the moment, but it literally gave you confidence. And I think that's what all of this is really designed to be able to do: is to give people the confidence to react a little bit differently, maybe actually respond right. instead of react um, in emergency situations. You know, so that they can do the things that are necessary, even just the beginning things, you know, holding that traffic until the police got there. Right. Yeah. It's major. It's major. It's making the the incident a sa- safer than, I mean, it's a little bit unsafe, but you need to make it safer so you don't cause more injuries. Right. That right. You get that in first aid classes. You know, I've had to take first aid classes because I work with kids every year to keep that certification. And first thing you always do is you make an environment safe so that no one else gets injured. Right, right, yeah. Another critical step. So if people would like to call in about their own questions, I have one. We have two sheep, and they don't fit in crates. <laughs> what do you suggest we do? Well, you'd be surprised. We've had, we've had some baby cows and some horses and some sheep in some Goats. large crates. Yeah. They do fit in crates. They uh, do. But, you know. Not Fiona. That. Yeah, <laughs> that. Have you ever caught sheep in your animal control days? Um, are, are they trained? Can you put them on a leash? Oh, oh, no. No, no, no. The trainer is, doesn't function well. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, we in the, historically I have captured um, loose sheep and goats, and uh, we've actually ha- have spots in our farm that we've out at the Amazing Society that we we could hold them. You know, small amount of animals, not a large herd. Uh, right. But there's there's um, you know there's there's variety of areas. Uh, boarding facilities would probably help you out on something like that. Okay. Um, 
what, 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 what do you do if you see an animal like that out just running around? I mean, I can think about it like a cat or a dog, but if I see a sheep or a goat or something else running around, should, should I be trying to do something with it? What's your recommendation about dealing with larger animals? You mean in a non-emergency setting? Or both. Or, or yeah. both. Yeah. Well, usually in a non-emergency setting, people call Sonoma County Animal Control, and mm. they... Their animal control officers are equipped they, and their trucks with, you know, feed for horses and whatnot. And they've got fence equipment to fix because um, usually farm animals get out in an opening in a fence on the country rural roads. And it's usually that that animal is stopping traffic just by sitting in the middle of a, of a road. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll get a call and then that animal control officer usually goes and they find that farmer or rancher and lets them know i i you know temporarily fixed your fence but you may need to fix your fence a little bit better sure sure um and then but what about the animal i mean if i see a horse alongside the road i mean so i was driving to hillsburg early one foggy morning and there were three horses out on the road Mm. and people stopped and pretty soon someone said oh my gosh i know where those horses go and we just kind of herded them back uh-huh. So a lot of times you can just go and start knocking on local doors mm-hmm. and say, hey, this animal's loose, do you know? Because in rural areas, people usually know who owns what animals. And they'll right. look at, you know, people will say, hey, I have a pasture. Let's put them in there until we find out who they belong to. Mm-hmm. So just mm-hmm. asking around. Because they don't usually wander far. Mm-hmm. When they get out, they tend to stay in their area. So mm-hmm. I think... Certainly calling county, right. but then just checking with local neighbors to see if anyone knows what's up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have seen animals out, you know, alongside the road and things like that, l- larger animals, and they don't seem to be nearly as anxious or stressed a lot of times. They're just, they're grazing. Right. Essentially, it's new grass, or right? You know, it's, it's a different, it's a different you place. You worry about them crossing the road and getting hit. Right. Well, and approaching them is the other thing, is, is approaching them, especially horses. For some reasons, horses know that I'm scared of horses. Horses, you know, so they re- they react to me, you know, in a way that actually isn't 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 good for them or for me. I think right. so. How to be able to approach those animals is a, is is another question. It's being calm. I mean, it's always being calm and having confidence. Mm-hmm. You, you have to have a fake confidence if you don't have the real confidence, so that you can do what you know. Katie suggested is kind of herding them towards an enclosed area mm-hmm. to get okay. them off mm-hmm. that road. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why horses know, because I'm not confident around horses. Right. <laughs> no, it, and it's an experience to do that. I mean, yeah. You just can't be fresh and just walk up right. to a horse. You have to know how to approach them and not get on their bad side or the back side. And, mm-hmm. You know, how to reach up and grab their halter if they have a halter mm-hmm. and walk them. You know, yeah. an old trick that we use in animal control is you had a coffee can and you put rocks in it and just shake it into a large animal. They think that might can be a, a corn or oh, a sweet, goodness. and they would follow the can. And we would use that, and you'd walk up into a in an area uh-huh. and follow them, and have them follow you. Or you can grab some some grass. Yep. Uh-huh. Some feed, some makeshift feed, and just have them follow you. Eat carrots in your car. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's back to the treats. Yeah, you know? right, uh, right. Yeah, but without those actual treats, that's actually a really good idea. It's yeah. just something that gets their attention right. that they, you know, they think might be that oh, yeah. treat. You know, I mean, yeah. So I mean, I like that. That's that's a that's a really good one. So, during an emergency, and my animals uh, separated from me, where, what do I do? Where do? Who do I go? Who do I contact? It, it, you start contacting all the shelters in Sonoma County, one by one. Have that that flyer or that photo and that information. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can go in person or check their website. Most animal shelters have websites, and they'll have um, the strays or the lost animals, and you can see. But going in person is really helpful because um, sometimes they'll let you go see those animals that were brought in. Because one person's black lab may look very close to another person's black lab. Right. And that's why um, having that cheat sheet of that flyer is really great. It, it, it seems as though I would want to have it on a flash drive, too, so I can email it to the shelters. Sure. Yeah. That, put, it on, put it on your Facebook page. Put it on the Humane Society Facebook page. Sure. Right. Um, so there, so the, there's a number of shelters and, and they have th- forms usually fill out for a lost report. Okay. And and the, so the the internet's down. Right. It's a little tougher. Uh, yeah. Um so it seems as though that you you want to have if I'm a pet owner and I care about finding my pet after an emergency, I would want to have a, a list of telephone numbers of all the different shelters. And where could I? So I should investigate that prior to an emergency. Yeah, we have a handout at the Humane Society that has a list of it. Um, that's another good preparedness: is become familiar with your community's animal resources. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you live in Sonoma County, know where all those shelters are located. Right, and again, your website, um, SonomaHumane.org, has a lot on it. So yes. if if the internet is up, yes. and this is pre pre event, right. um, I can go there and get a lot of this information, and then use that to help create that emergency kit, that right. pet emergency kit. So it sounds like you have a, a resource of volunteers as well as professionals, and they're one, they're volunteering their time, and I certainly get that, but you have an ability to outreach into some some community of people now. Yes. Right. That's but, great. That's mm-hmm. great. And, and so, oh, yeah, they're trained, you know, in whatever department they work in, and so they really come and help. And, I mean, it, it could be simple as they had um, taken a whole bunch of laundry to a local laundromat because our laundry facilities are being utilized 24-7. So we, when we have a extra laundry, volunteers mm-hmm. come and do the laundry and bring it back clean for us. I mm-hmm. mean, it sounds really s- basic, but it's all those basic things that need to be done when you have an influx of animals. Right, right. And, and back to the ringworm, these animals, the uh, treatment for them was uh, d- dipping them in uh, sulfur treatment. So we had to get volunteers to help us with that. So these were people that were experienced in handling the animals, that were trained, so dipping the dogs and dipping the cats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that's great that you have an adequate, or, or maybe not adequate, but that you have that pool of people that you can that you can draw from it. Oh, yeah, they're vital. Very yeah. vital. We're I, a volunteer-run organization, as are many mm-hmm. animal organizations mm-hmm. so if i if i had like an interest to you know not help all the time but really only help during an emergency if i wanted to say yes that's the kind of person that i would like to be i mean could i could i come in and say hey i really only want to i can only be available during emergency if i'm available but you could call on me would would, would some sure. level of training be available for me we'd probably put you with with um activities that you wouldn't need a a lot of training, but you know, like the laundry or um, crate cleaning, crate yeah. cleaning, right? Real basic things, um, right? Right. 
I can do those. Yeah. yeah. I know how to do those. We'll sign you up. And we usually, <laughs> the volunteers that start then usually love us and they stay. Right. So you would become right. a permanent volunteer. I think, <laughs> in, in the, if, for me at least, in the, the way that I look at, say, the, the CERT training or the Map Your Neighborhood training is, is to be able to relieve the professionals to take care of the larger problems. Mm-hmm. Is it takes a pool of people mm-hmm. knowing just what to do about like the basics, like you're talking about in our neighborhoods or even for the CERT type training, um, you know, to be able to take care of some basic things so the professionals can do the, the you know the higher level items that their skill set really allows them to take to take care of. So I get that it's the same sort of thing, you know that that's the kind of thing that if I had the time and the energy and and my family was okay and my pets were okay that I could feel comfortable to come down and do some of the basic things that you're talking about, knowing that your pros would be able to get to the higher level items. So I, th- I think that's a little bit of a different topic. Is let's say if we had an earthquake, there's going to be the possibility that we also have a lot of injured pets. Mm-hmm. So I know that that's something that Don's been working on is is disaster preparedness around how would we deal with a large influx of, of pets that are injured. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and fortunately for us, we have a, a hospital with veterinarians and medical staff that, uh, you know, in times of a disaster, we're going to have uh, backup generators so we can have our treatment room running um, if we lose power and be able to help help with animals that are come in that are injured. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to know, is there anything else that you want the public to know about the Humane Society? And I'd also like to know why you got involved in this in the first place. In, in our jobs? Or yeah. Our jobs? <laughs> the, the Humane Society. Why did you choose to, to work in the Humane Society? In direction in general. Yeah. Um, well, I, I love dogs. I love animals. Um, I saw the, the building being built. I drove by it every day while it was the, our new building. And um, I was in between jobs, and I thought, I really want to work there. <laughs> and I had adopted from there before. And, um, and I'm a trained credentialed teacher, and I know that a lot of animal um, agencies have humane education programs for children. And so I applied for a job. Don actually hired me, um, and I was an adoption counselor. (laughs) I'm always grateful for that. um, I was an adoption counselor first and kind of learned the animal welfare side Mm -hmm. from the ground up. I did kenneling adoptions. I volunteered as an outreach, and then I turned in a proposal for their youth programs. That was 10 years ago. And um, we've developed a whole bunch of programs for kids, summer camps, winter camps, community service for school, internships for high school students. Um, Hmm. We've offered a variety of different programs for kids. And so I get the love of combining kids and animals. And there's, that's how I got into it. And it's great. I don't think I'll ever go back to anything else. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just from driving by. (laughs) <laughs> over and over and over again. You build it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a big, there was a big bone with um, oh. thermometer of, of when they were doing the capital campaign to build that building. And I thought, Ooh, they're getting money. They're going to, it took a while. They're going to finish that building and they're going to need people to work there. Right. Right. So just really quickly, is there an eight, a minimum age limit for like the intern program for, for high school students? Um, 
I work with kids um, usually right now. If they're juniors or seniors, they yeah. have to be pretty mature okay. and responsible. Right, right, you know, right. to follow the safety rules and and all lots of information, lot to learn when working with shelter animals mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. safety. Um, but we've got youth programs for second grade on up. Oh, great! Our camps great. and school visits and tours. Oh, good. Well, um, I'm involved with the Reach School, so I'll be calling you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See if we can't get something going. Um, well. Uh, the thing I would want to get across is if you hadn't had a chance to come to the Humane Society, you should. It's a special place. Uh, it's, it's, you can get to see animals. There's a pet store. Um, it's, it's just really, a, and it's a warming, welcoming spot. It's not your old animal shelter that you know where you have these kennels lined up and barking dogs. That just doesn't happen. And there's, you know, like we've talked about, there's a lot of programs, dog training. Um, just a variety of uh, things just just to come in and walk through i think it gives you a great opportunity to see some pets some ideal pets and if you don't have a pet maybe get one mm-hmm. um myself you know i've been there for a long time and when i first first got out of college i wanted to become a park ranger and, and i, I love dealing with pet uh people and and uh it was working outside and there was an opportunity to become an animal control officer and and that's probably what brought me there and i just fell in love with the place um I've had animals, and it's just life in general just happened. You know, I got married, we moved into the area, and, and here I am. So it's it's an interesting jump. I mean, so you saw the building, then thought about getting a job. You were an animal control person. So, like, how did you make that jump into the Humane Society? Was there something that... Well, it was together. At that time, the Humane Society was doing animal control. Ah. So ah. we, um, that it was before they, they stopped, uh, we had animal control officers at the Humane Society that were contracted with the city of Santa Rosa for animal control. So ah. there was four or five officers at one time. So you, you were already interfacing with the, the structure of the Humane Society. Yes. Yes. And then saw, it, it, and is the Sebastopol places at your first jump into sort of, what is it, administration, for lack of a better word? Yeah, yeah. From there, you know, when we were getting rid of the uh, the animal control contracts, it was an opportunity to become uh, part of the, the Humane Society as an adoption shelter manager. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took that on, hired, yeah. hired Beth. Yeah. That's so, great. Yeah. That's great. That's great. And I know that we've, we've got a board member right. also, but I just want to say, I mean, before we get to the board member, that the... Um, you too, in particular, you've come out into the community for cert for for you know the the other trainings that you've been involved with. So the, I think that therefore, in my mind, the Humane Society is a really great community member. You're a member of the Sebastopol community that I really value a lot. I mean, I know a lot of people that have been to the shelter and they're blown away, you know, by what it is because they're it's it is so welcoming and it is so clean. It just seems like it's the right place for an animal to be, and that you would want the animals that are there. So, I mean, I, I really admire what you guys what you guys have done, and then hopefully then that helps as far as the board member. <laughs> Go ahead, Ken. So, Whoops. that's right. I really got involved um, and was invited to join the board because of an acquaintance that, that's on the board. And my first thought was I couldn't do it because I feel too sorry for animals in cages. Mm. is really what I thought and it had been a long time since I'd been out to the shelter certainly long before the new building was there Mm. and so I went out was invited out a couple times and um, toured and I was shocked at what a different place it is now and how the emphasis is on really caring for the animals that are there making sure that they're healthy but also looking at them how their mental disposition is doing 
and one of the big focuses is on getting the animals out. They're really looking at turnaround time and how long animals stay at the shelter. They put special emphasis on dogs and cats who have been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. They do campaigns to try to, you know, we, we had a dog that was everyone loved and it just wouldn't get adopted. So they went all out and gave it a web page, and I think that's been a happy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. That's great. So I, I was so impressed with the care that goes into the animals that are there, and then also the outreach that happens in the community, getting people trained, getting people involved, um, teaching people how to care for their animals, how to make sure that people are adopting and taking animals that they will really love and care for. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard for a dog that gets brought back. Well, it didn't work out. It didn't work out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard for them. So it's training the community and training the people that come in to adopt pets. So I was really impressed with all of that. Oh, great. And great. like Don said, it is a great place to go. People ask me all the time, how can you go out there? It's so sad. And I said, you know, it's once in a while we have sad things happen. But it's not very often, and it's, you know, maybe an older dog dies or a dog comes in 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 rough shape, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. sad, but everything's done that can be done to do the right thing. And Mm -hmm. um, overall, it's just a really fun, happy place. And Beth mentioned it's through volunteers that it happens. Mm -hmm. 500 active? Yeah, we have over 600 volunteers, and we have about 50 or 60 staff. That's great. see how we... Volunteers are an integral part of the success. Right. And how many animals are there at, at any given time? Oh, gosh. You know, we could have up to 50 dogs and up over 100 cats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And rabbits. And rabbits. We have seven, eight bunny Guinea rabbits. Guinea pigs. Oh, wow. pigs. Wow. Occasional bird. Chickens. Um, we get chicken food. We <laughs> rescue chickens. Yeah. We have the Forget-Me-Not Farm Children's Services at the, uh, on the property, and they're another program of the organization as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that offers um, animal-assisted and horticulture therapy to at-risk kids. And we have 40 um, farm animals in the barn um, Mm. Mm. that are permanent residents. It's their sanctuary. That's great. That work with those kids doing animal-assisted therapy for kids that have been traumatized. Right, right. Um, And they help with the chicken rescues. That's great. Um, That's great. I never would have thought. (laughs) Right. They've been there for 23 years. Little treasure of a secret. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. We're a no-kill shelter that we're really proud of. Yes, identified mm-hmm. by a third upside party. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So we really work really hard to um, rehome and and you know find solutions for animals and work with rescue organizations. Um, so there's no clock or time limit limit on an animal. That's they great. There until we find a home for them. That's great. That's great. I think, Richard, you asked, what What do we want people to know? I recently participated in a program called FOSPICE, which is foster hospice. So an older dog was brought in under some bad circumstances, and they were asked to put it down. And so the staff did some evaluations and decided that there was no reason to put the dog down. But it was older and had some issues. She was deaf and partly blind. And a little rough around the edges, but Dr. Christie asked if I would take her in and said she would maybe live a week. They just weren't sure. Maybe she had a heart problem. And we had her for close to a year. And she ended up being a great dog. And the Humane Society would pay for any medications that she needed. I 
a couple times I brought her in and Dr. Christie did some testing on her and that's all covered. Mm-hmm. So it's an effort to get elderly animals into homes so they don't have to live their life out in the shelter. That's so great. I ran into a lot of people at the park that said, oh, I, I was in, I'm interested in that. So anyone mm-hmm. out there interested in taking in an older animal, but you're worried about the cost, yeah. you can you can reach out and bring that animal into your home and know that you know, you're not going to get hit down the road with a big medical expense. So. Yeah, I saw that on the website. It looks it's really it's a intriguing. Great program, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the FOSPIS is definitely on the website. And that's the way someone can volunteer off site so they can do it in their home. So if you don't have the time to come once a week for two hours and have a volunteer shift on site, we have the foster program and or the FOSPIS program. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the way a family, your whole family can kind of participate. You go through some training, you get a manual, you have the contacts. That's you great. You have to come in for medicine or veterinarian. That's great. That's great. Yeah. You know, one thing that comes to mind for me, too, is that it sounds like you do a lot on the local level. So you're on the board. So, I mean, it, how is how does this your group relate to either this i don't know whether it's a county level or a state level or or how how does that work i can tell you just from my position i'm a like i said i'm the humane educator and i'm on a i'm in a group of bay area humane educators so i have colleagues all throughout the greater bay area Mm -hmm. south of san francisco to tahoe and we meet twice a year Mm -hmm. so i connect with my colleagues in my similar position i'm also on i was um six years on the National Board uh, Association of Professional Humane Educators. So I had colleagues um, all across the country mm-hmm. that had my position at shelters all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a member of that organization as well. So I go to a yearly conference, and when I was on the board, I met with them twice a year. And right. so that's how, for, for my position, and that helps me because those colleagues have known some of my at-home colleagues you know, so the new cat behaviorist that recently started with us, she knows some of the I, I humane. I know <laughs> she knows some of the humane educators I know through my other groups because mm-hmm. she worked from with the East Bay SPCA. Mm-hmm. So it's large, but yet it's a small. Sure, sure. Yeah, and connected position to position. Is it the same way on the for like the boards for the larger organization of the Sonoma Humane? <laughs> okay, you can't see the head shaking. <laughs> no, but we we do. I think a lot of the people from the Humane Society and the board attend a yearly program down at ARF, set in the East Bay, mm-hmm. and they do a big training thing with breakout sessions so to help bring the community the animal community together mm-hmm. so it's a local locally essentially locally funded there's not money that comes from a larger state or national yeah it's- really good point sonoma county humane society is funded by local people mm-hmm. we get zero mm-hmm. from government or from the national humane society mm-hmm. okay I so think- i want to repeat that yes. they get zero from anybody else i know you see the ads for the humane society on tv Mm-hmm. And they do not give local shelters money. They're their own group. So uh, everything that's done here in Sonoma County is through funding um, from volunteers and donors. Mm-hmm. That's huge. I mean, you have a huge facility for one. I mean, so if that came all from donations, and I mean, that's incredible. I mean, and it's been there for years now. It's, it's also probably worth maybe, Don, talking a little bit about the Hillsburg Shelter. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. As you may or may not know, the Hillsburg, um, we, we took over uh, 
animal sheltering and uh, animal control. And we're working closely with the Petaluma Animal Services. They're doing the animal control. We're doing the sheltering and adoptions in Eelsburg. And right now we're set up in, in, in really limited uh, facility. It's uh, shelter uh, trailers. And right next to that is a brand new building that's about 70% done. And we're going to be taking that over, sure. and we're going to be completing that. So we'll have a, a, a nice shelter in Hillsburg. It's going to be really ideal. We're going to set it up. Um, Kiska, our executive director, is working on making sure that, you know, it's it's going to be state-of-the-art. Mm-hmm. So it's really the rooms um, are going to be set up so that, you know, we, you know we've, we've kind of learned from where we're at, and we're going to go a little bit a step further. Well, that's, okay, so it's going to be similar to what's happening in the local one, but you've 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 learned some lessons. Yeah, we learned some lessons on the rooms. Um, it's going to have a nice big facility for training, so we'll have another area north of us. So people up in the Hillsburg or in Geyserville area will have an opportunity to, you know, take advantage of that too. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. And yeah. that too would be um, donation driven, volunteer and donation driven. Yes, it will be. And is there a group of people there already working and? Helping? Well, you know, at one time, the, well, the, the, there was a Healdsburg Humane Society, and they, they, they disbanded, and they had a strong, small volunteer base. And, and that base is kind of waiting for us to come. They're, they're, right now they're helping out. But, again, we're limited. We're like in little trailers about the size of this building here. Mm-hmm. And we, we house some cats, and we bring up a adoptable dog mm-hmm. or two dogs at a time. Mm-hmm. So there's really, you know, they come up and they help, but... I think once we move into the shelter, we'll really see more of them coming out and adding more to it. Right. The, the community up there can bring in strays. Right there. now, currently. Currently, yeah. So yeah. we're taking in um, strays or lost animals, and then they have that animal control officer. That's great. That's great. And so from the from like the board of directors sort of view, I mean, it's like reaching out into another area. Will that be a separate board then that would end up? No, it's it's it's, it's still all Sonoma Humane Society. That's great. That's yeah. great. Two campuses. Yeah, two campuses. It's <laughs> a great way. That's great. Yeah. That's yeah, I think one of the things that we really talked about was there's some things that we have at our local shelter in Santa Rosa. I always want to say Sebastopol. <laughs> mailing addresses Santa Rosa. Yeah. So there's things that we have there that we don't necessarily need to duplicate in Hillsburg. Mm-hmm. For instance, we have a, a large hospital with a lot of equipment, and that's really expensive. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to duplicate that effort there. So I think we're looking at, at doing a big behavioral area up right. in Hillsburg because we don't have room for it here mm-hmm. at the Sebastopol site. So mm-hmm. I think we're being really smart about how we can leverage the mm-hmm. facilities to the best use. Yeah, they great. will both have, as Beth mentioned, you can bring animals in. We'll have animals there that are adoptable. Right, right. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's great. exciting. Yeah, I, think, I think it's great. And we've seen a lot of support from the Hillsburg community. I think they're really excited about getting it up and running. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. It's nice to know that it's working well enough yeah. that you can actually take it, you know, to reach out. You can reach out. I guess we're hoping, what, in six to eight months to be yeah. finished? Yeah. 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 That's great. That's great. Anything else, I mean, that we should cover, Beth? Oh, i just like to say um, we do have, <laughs> my little plug, we do have winter camps coming up. For the kids during the winter break, Mm -hmm. we offer two sessions. The first week is December 22nd through the 24th. Um, Camps are 9 to 3. There is a fee. You can register online through the Humane Society's website. Um, And it's a great opportunity if your kids have all that energy and you need to get busy 
preparing your house or still working and you need some great educational fun place for your kids to be, they'll learn what the Humane Society does. They'll be part of the Humane Society for that week and um, learn about animal care and really mm-hmm. get involved. We have guest speakers. The veterinarian hospital comes and talks and presents to the kids. We do agility. We work with animals. We spend time at the farm. And then we have it the second week as well. Um, December 29th through the 31st. And what would the fee be? It's 175 per week. Okay. Yep. There's a lot on your calendar, if you want to mention that on the website. I mean, there's a lot of what's happening for you guys on the yes. calendar. Yeah. yeah. So to go to the, the um, um, SonomaHumane.org, there's quite a few things on the calendar coming up. That's great that you have mm-hmm. so much for people to be able to take advantage of. Well, I really appreciate you coming in today and, and chatting with us and giving us you know, some more of the information about what's happening, and hopefully um, um, we'll be able to talk some more in the future. There's some other elements. I mean, I'd be really interested to know more about so that maybe at another time in maybe 2015 we can get you to come back and, sure. and we'll slice up some of the information and get into a little bit more detail. Sure. So if you go into the Humane Society and you heard, you were... Uh, motivated by this radio show, tell them, <laughs> and and um, please do go in to visit. It's a beautiful place to see, and the staff are wonderful. My animals are beautiful. You know what? At, at our store, we should set up little animal preparedness emergency kits. We should. Yeah, that would yeah. be a great thing that people could just go in and. Yeah. Here, yes. you've adopted your new dog. Take your little emergency kit and could have some stuff in there and a little list of other things to include. Yes, a, a list a of things to include. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's just a few small items. Right. Yeah, yeah. And what to put on your chip and and mm-hmm. and, and and so in, so show an example of a, a flyer. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that would be yeah, great. That's a great idea. Yeah. There's yeah. a thing on the website. For the flyer. flyer. All right, wonderful. So anyway, go visit the Humane Society and donate. Yes. We appreciate it. You're such a great service to the uh, Santa Rosa, Sonoma County. So. I count him as Sebastopol. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me too. A little prejudice. Yeah, a little Thank you. Great job. Thank you. So one of the things that Skip and I have thought about is talking about some of the insights that we've developed uh, over the years about disaster preparedness. <laughs> like, why are we doing this radio show? Right, or, or yes, insights or things that we really don't understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> and one of the most interesting things is resistance uh, to disaster preparedness. Like, why... I have more resistance from people with PhDs and uh, executive directors and state council, state uh, administrators and stuff than I do with developmentally disabled people that I talk to. The people with um, intellectual disabilities understand completely why you need to be prepared and why first responders aren't necessarily going to be there. so that's some. So so we've studied that, um, and so we want to talk a little bit about that. One of the things that I ran across while reading George Lakoff um, 
is that we have two neurotransmitters in the most primitive area of our brain. One neurotransmitter is active when we're being reactive, and one neurotransmitter is being active when we're being reflective. So we want to have people move from being reactive to disasters to being reflective uh, in disasters. Like really, for example, uh, just a few minutes ago, being reflective about how you're going to care for your pets during an emergency. Very, very critical thing to do. Um, so what happens when the, with these two neurotransmitters is when the one reactive tr- neurotransmitter is active, the reflective transmitter is shut off. I, I think you, if you remembered, uh, when I first heard about disa- going to listen to the guy talk about disaster preparedness, my first reaction was, no, I don't have time for that. We don't have money for that. Um, and I was serving developmentally disabled people at that time as a program director. And I had a, a, I really wanted our people to survive a disaster, obviously, but I figured it was somebody else's job. It was a job for the American Red Cross. And you, I couldn't, that information that um, maybe the Red Cross isn't prepared for all 500,000 of us in Sonoma County, I, I didn't even think about. Right, right, right. So, so wh- what have you been reflecting on resistance? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the differences between what you and I have done over time here is, is that you've been dealing at a, at a different level with organizations. And I've been sort of, you know, feeling like anyway, I'm, I'm more at the street level. And there's a, there's a good group of people, individuals that step forward that, you know, have already some interest, some reason for them to be, um, um, wanting to get more information about either disaster preparedness or just to be more prepared in general. But there's the larger group that are resistant. It's the larger group of us that if it's not one of the things that I had wanted to talk about today is relevance. If it's not really relevant to me in the moment, then I have a a greater, I have greater resistance. I mean, everybody's really busy. Um, When you talk about quote unquote disasters, it's pretty easy to think that it's not here now. There's a lot of reason that people can, um, you know, support not paying attention to it, you know, not putting any attention on it at all, as a matter of fact, which is essentially what that I, I think that resistance is. So, I, you know, we've run into it in trying to do the CERT program and the Map Your Neighborhood program and the things that we've been trying to do in Sebastopol. Again, a good group of people step forward, but it's the larger group of the community that, again, it's the, it, it, it hasn't come up on their radar screen for some reason for them to be able to pay attention to it. Yeah, so what we'd like to talk about, Today, I believe, is how do we respond to that resistance and how do we shift uh, to awaken people to the relevance of disaster preparedness? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it will happen if, if you get involved with disaster preparedness and you feel the need uh, to do it. You will, you will run into resistance. Right, Your neighbor right. will, won't want to meet. Uh, they don't want to be talked to. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. One of the beauties for me about disaster preparedness is that opens up our society to 
to telling each other that we care about one another. Right. right. Uh, that this this is a wonderful opportunity. Not there isn't very many opportunities that we have um, in day to day that we can say, "Hey, Skip, I care about you, and I want you to survive a disaster. I want your daughter to decide to uh, right. survive a disaster." Right, and actually to be able to show it. Yes. Which yeah. is a lot of times much easier for us than it is to be able to do that discussion about it. It's to really right. show what it is, and it's a way to be able to show that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the distinctions that I've come across besides the two neurotransmitters um, is the, 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 the Hindus and the Sikhs and the Buddhists break the cosmos up into three stages or phases. The first one is inertia. The second one is restlessness, and the third is being who you are. So from where I sit now, looking at disaster preparedness, expressing disaster preparedness and the need for disaster preparedness is who I am. I care about people. I want everybody to survive a disaster. So, and that's who I am, and that's who Skip is. Um, and there was a time when I was inert. I didn't have any. I didn't think about it. I didn't want to think about it. Um, and I didn't. And I didn't think about it. And then after I learned a couple facts, facts, I I got restless. Uh, Roger, you yeah. on? Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So I, I'm not sure what you covered in pets earlier on. I just wanted to throw in a, a couple of my experiences working with the Red Cross and going out on national disasters, if I could. Um, Absolutely. Locally, we had the um, CATS program, the Coordination of Animal Transportation and Sheltering. And that's something above and beyond, which Red Cross officially does. But we had several volunteers that would um, follow up with families that had been displaced by fires or a flood or something. And they would stay behind, and um, although the family had moved on someplace else or was out of shelter, they would come back and look for their dog or their cat that wasn't around during that fire event. Huh. Um, and it does happen where the pets get so excited, so so agitated by the change of what goes on, they don't kind of come to the family. They just want to hide, and they just want to hang out for a while. And it may be days before they come on back home. So people have got to expect that if they don't have their pets with them and if they don't have them under control, you've got to go back and look for them at some point. And when it's not possible for the family to go back and look for them, then we've had the Red Cross volunteers that are really into pets go on back and spend some time trying to get those pets. And was that, Roger, did you say that's something that um, um, Red Cross does nationally or is that something no, that's just happening no, that's locally? No, that's something we do here locally. There's a lot of pet lovers at the Red Cross, so they would take those steps. They also took the steps looking at a large-scale disaster. They went out and got some kennels. They got some um, carrying cases. Um, they got some large-scale containers that would, you know, like a like at a vet center where you'd have a rack of, like, eight pets um, on a rolling rack that you can move around. Mm-hmm. Um, locally, the Red Cross has also looked with REVMA, Redwood Empire Veterinarian Medical Association, uh, which is a loose coalition of veterinarians, pets, carers, um, kennels, and whatnot, so that when a disaster does happen, we know what people are going to open up their doors and are ready to take in pets at either free of charge or low charge. Um, so when people are staying at a shelter and there's not a pet shelter set up beside it, 
there is a place, a safe place, secure place for those pets to go and the families to go visit and, and have the pets taken care of by a professional for a while. Yeah, that's great. You know, one of the things that you mentioned is something that was talked about um, with with the folks from the Humane Society, and that is being able to keep the you know keep the pets with you, and that there's you know there's issues about that when you come to a shelter. Correct. And because is, are there the, solutions the issue sort of goes down to protecting the person that has an allergy or has fear of animals, even pets, um, having that having that response where it's not conducive for a good stay for the humans inside. We've tried to keep the pets in a nearby shelter or setting up a pet shelter uh, in close proximity. And if that's not possible, then we work with the Red White Empire Veterinarian Medical Association to try to find a secure place nearby for them to stay. Oh, that's great. When I was down in San Diego a few years ago for wildland fires, we had a a very large mega shelter which held about 4,000 people at the fairgrounds. And out there we had the Humane Society, the Humane, yeah, I think it was the Humane Society. I'm not sure It's because it was a few years ago. But one of the big pet advocacy associations opened up a pet shelter right beside the Red Cross shelter. So the clients could just go in one door and out the other door and see their pets over there and then go back to the shelter and stay there. There was also a fair number of Red Cross people that assisted in the maintenance and providing the food and the care and the cleanup materials for that shelter as well. And that's sort of the ideal situation. You can't have them inside the shelter, but when you can have a shelter right there beside them, that works out just great. Yeah, that's super. Was, did something like that happen in Napa by chance that you know of? No. Um, there was nobody coming in with any pets. Um, we were prepared to deal with when they came on in. There was only one person that came in and looked at the situation, and we told her that we could make accommodations. She said she'd make her own accommodation. So um, it's a choice that folks make. If they, if they can't be prepared to have their pet a little bit away from them, um, they're going to have to figure out something else. Right. But the doors are always open to accommodate people at a shelter. That's the primary thing, everybody at the shelter. Right. It's very hard to have somebody come on in um, with a pet, and then have a later arrival at the pet be sensitive to the pet or sensitive to the fur or whatever the condition is, um, and then you have to get a person to remove it. So we sort of headed off of the pass and try to make accommod- reasonable accommodations for people to take their pets elsewhere. Right. And is the, is the CATS group here locally, are those trained by Red Cross? Well, we don't actually have a training in CATS, but they are Red Cross volunteers and paid staff that have um, in trained in client casework, trained in disaster response, trained in sheltering or feeding of people, um, whatever training they may have, added to their own natural understanding of what it means to have a pet and to take care of that pet. So they do all of that. Right. Well, that's that's great. The, um, Beth from the Humane Society was talking about the the level of training that they can provide to be able to assist people to know what to do with animals during emergencies. So maybe there's an opportunity. Maybe some of those cats people have already taken that kind of training through the Red, through the Humane Society. There, there may have been that. I know I've watched one of the videos about how to put together. Um, a pet shelter in an unusual location. The example they used was a school where you had all the people staying inside the auditorium, making use of the gymnasium, eating out of the cafeteria. Um, but they took a, a hallway and a classroom and they lined the class, they lined the hallway with plastic, you know, like five feet up, heavy duty plastic. And 
and they lined it from one wall to the other wall. And they had all the operations, all the, pay, all the cages, all the feeding uh, going on outside of there. They made sure they had an exit door nearby so they could take the pets out for fresh air, get a walk, do whatever they have to do outside and keep it clean outside. Um, so there, there is training out there that people can take. But the best training is for people at home to be ready and take their pets seriously. Think about their survival as much as anybody else's survival. If your pet is important to you like that, then make a plan. Have a few things inside your kit that's going to feed the pet. Make sure you have the copies of their registration papers or whatever papers for the vet or anything you've had to deal with for the pets. Make sure you've got some toys, some food, all of that set aside in a small part of your preparedness kit that you have for the family so the pets can be taken care of when the time comes. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I think um, it'd be great to have maybe yourself or somebody come on and talk with us maybe in 2015 about that CATS program and being able to, you know, branch out in the, in the discussion, of course, but to be able to focus on the fact that, yeah, there's a group of people that are going to be following up behind this, which is exactly something that the Red Cross is really well known for. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to do a, a FEMA webinar September 10th of 2015 and uh roger is a very key part of that and so we want you to come back and speak to us for an hour hour and a half so i'm not sure i can speak that long on the pets program but i can only speak that long on disasters and response but but all the things that you're doing for the for sonoma county and the the nation and with regarding to red cross because you you show up everywhere yeah (laughs) Yeah, we always seem to hear about the places that you just were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well Rod- it's, it's, I always come back and share the information from where I have been. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's that's one of the great things about you, Roger. Hey, well, Roger, thanks for calling in. We really appreciate it. We're going to wrap up the rest of the program here. Thanks so much for calling in. All right, we'll talk to you later. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, life happens. <laughs> so... <clears throat> And because life happens, and because I know that who I am is someone who cares about people, and and I'll always be involved with disaster preparedness because that's what I think a human being they they eat, they sleep, and they also prepare for emergencies. So um, so whatever happens is okay with me. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it comes back to me, for me even what you're saying, Richard, about that whole sense of relevance. I mean, you've you've sort of touched in on emergency preparedness at a level that has it's relevant to you. Yes. You know, and yeah. and I think that you know, going back to the resistance piece, I think part of what I've been grappling with in this last while is figuring out how to be able to talk to people about just preparedness, you know, um, and, and thinking through those places where maybe something has happened to them that they maybe felt not prepared to deal with something. And it could be a small thing. You know, I mean, I, I think about my daughter, maybe she breaks her arm, you know, while she, while we're together doing something, how, how am I going to feel about being able to deal with that kind of situation? Will I be in that sort of like that reaction place that you're talking about, you know, or will I be in that reflective place? You know, will I know enough to be able to be reflective, to be able to respond rather than react? And how 
how to be able to talk to that larger group of people um, about those small things that happen so that this information can be relevant can be relevant to them. Well, I, I think it's important while you're doing this because you will run across resistance and uh, is to not feel discouraged uh, that this is who you are and you'll figure it out. We're, we are trying to figure out how to c- create a cultural ch- shift in from dependency on others to self-sufficiency and and there's no uh, book for that there's you can't look it up on the internet we're creating it right now so so it's important not not to be discouraged that each each time you you're someone resists what you have to say uh, that gives you more information on how to be more effective the next time right so i think that points out like the difference between one of the differences between you and I and how we approach this because I think as you were saying before this is it's it's already become who you are to be this and frankly um, what is it the restlessness yes (laughs) I think that's sort of where I am with this because I I try to bring the message out and when it's not received readily that resistance that I run into I I get I think a little bit beyond beyond restlessness agitation comes to mind you know so I haven't really brought it on totally myself you know to feel completely comfortable in it because I really do want that message to be out there and I would like for more people to be um, ready, if you will. Well, the, the danger is when when you ha- you're in this restless state uh, that that you'll become discouraged and become inert again. Mm-hmm. That you'll mm-hmm. re- withdraw into you know into your room and not come out again. Right. Because, oh, because people just don't understand me. Right. Or, you right. Know, they're okay, just, I have that. I yeah. have that. <laughs> so so the. the the best thing I think is to just understand that that's who you are, mm-hmm. and I know that's who you are. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I do yeah. think though that like the step beyond like the restlessness, like what is it that helps people to get beyond that? My my sense is, and I, I believe this actually is, is that it's information, right? And then that's part of why this is to me is important. Also, I think is to be able to bring information out so that it will help people to get past those stages and actually become more, you know, become more familiar and therefore have it become more of who they are. I know a lot of people that that do these things that we talk about and and it's it's part of their daily practice. It's part of just what they do. They know they need to have water. They know they need to have that go kit. You know, maybe they've already done some of the things that 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 the humane society was talking about today because they've already brought it into their being and it's not even a big deal, but they just bring it into their being and they go forward. Right. My wife just texted me and told me to be nice to you, so I must have... <laughs> <laughs> so I better behave. Thank myself. you. <laughs> so. Right, but I think that's I, you know, to me, you know, again, like a variety of avenues, a variety of ways of being able to express this information to be able to find those places where people can hear it a little bit better. Right. You know, it's one of those things about carrying the message and not being attached to the outcome, right. you know, which is a wonderful way of being, you know, and at the same time, I, I do feel that sense of attachment to the outcome because I'd really like for people to be comfortable enough with the information, but, but I do have to let go of that. Right. You know, I think I definitely have to 
to let go of that. And we've, we've run into situations with, say, the cert training, and we've run into these situations where you see the, 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 the lion's share of the people. They're not only just not, it's not that they're resistant, but it's just not on their radar screen. And finding right. that way to do that is, is it, I'm restless about yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> but but, it, but uh, so the restlessness is a good thing in that it keeps you looking for new ways to communicate what, what we're doing. Right. Um, but, but if you keep coming from that, what you're, what you're about is saving people's lives and cutting down stress and, and actually the joy of preparedness Mm -hmm. that you're, you're, what you're doing is, is bringing the community together. Yeah. Trying to find a way to be able to have people relate to the information differently, I think is, is the key. And I think that's one of the questions that, that you had really wanted to address in, in the time that we have, you know, is like, what, what is it about stress? What causes stress? You know, what, 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 what is it that we're dealing with that makes us sort of reactive? Right. When Eric was here last time, he asked that question, what causes stress? And my immediate response was, it's believing something about yourself that's not true. And and he he didn't pick up on that. He didn't go with that at all, actually. <laughs> no, frankly, no. the way that Eric is. Um, but what I meant by that is that um, you do want to have uh, you do want to ex- express who you are, mm-hmm. and in if if you believe that you're not someone that cares about other people. That causes a day, great deal of stress mm-hmm. in your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but if once you accept that you do care about people and you want to take care of everybody, um, that causes a great uh, amount of lightness and, and joy to bubble up inside you. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? You yeah, 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 I do. I do. Yeah. I think one way that I've heard something similar talked about is, is that if you, like if you anger, you know, so the metaphor, the, the analogy or the metaphor is, is that if you're holding anger, right. you can't really hold anything else. Right. But if you open yourself up, if you let go of whatever it is that you have going on, then you're much more open, right. you know, to being able to receive as well as being able to then give out whatever it is that you have going on. And I think, you know, to a degree, I see these first responders come in. These are people that have huge hearts, right. you know, because they're doing this kind of work. And in a lot of cases, it's really been channeled through a very specific set of guidelines, rules, and everything else. And I think they have to sort of like harden themselves to the things that they're dealing with. But I do think that the basic reason almost every firefighter or policeman that I've ever talked with is... They, they do it because they care, right. you know, I mean, and it, it, but they're, they've taken on that challenge at a really, really different level. And I just like to see people on a more, you know, the, the resident or the community member sort of level take on just being prepared yourself so that you're not a part of the problem. You know, you can actually just take care of yourself, your family, possibly work with those in your neighborhood and just not be a part of the problem that these other professionals are really, you know, sort of like designed to take care of. Yeah, they've committed their life. They've trained and trained and trained. Trained. That's the difference. I think that's a big difference is the training as compared to us becoming educated. You know, some people are trained in this, you know, and other people really, we just need to be more educated so that we can do these things ourselves. Yeah. Once you commit to... To being prepared, um, there's all sorts of resources available to you on the internet. Uh, organizations like Map Your Neighborhood, uh, Cope, Cert, 
right. all those different things that people want. People are, are waiting to talk to you because not too many people talk to them. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. And another resource is the is is our website. We do happen to have a website. It's thejoyofpreparedness.com, yeah. and that has a little bit of a different angle in looking on the information. It's still the same information, but it's yeah. definitely a a little bit of a different angle, so that maybe we can bring that information into people in a different way. It doesn't have to be through the fear angle. It can actually be through the sense of this is just part of my responsibility. This is part of what I need to do to take care of myself and my family and and my neighborhood. Yeah. And there's actually pleasure in in being prepared. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 You just feel good about yourself and, and, and you're, you're capable of helping other people that you don't, don't even know. Right. Uh, you might see someone on the street that's injured themselves, and you will have the bandages there for them, uh, you right. know, or with the water, or whatever, or the blanket uh, to yeah. protect them. So, and just being there sometimes yeah. with them is enough. I mean, I had a situation where I I was the one of the first couple of regular people that that came upon an accident, and the only thing that I could really do, I mean, I was really scared, really, really scared that this girl was very severely hurt, and she was. But there was, luckily, sitting in the restaurant half a block down, an EMT that saw it and came walking up and could immediately take over what was going on. But I was able to still be with that person. You know, and I think that in itself, including what the EMT said, is, you know, that that's important. You know, let them do their work, the assessment and other things that they actually have the skills to do. And then the other thing is, is to be present with the person, you know, that in itself is, right. is huge. Yeah. It's huge. And after action reports continually state this kind of information, that that was what was the most important for the people that were going through the most stress. Right. So we'll talk a little bit more in the future about resistance and relevance and all that kind of stuff what, uh, until the resistance stops. Right, right. Yeah. So we have a long program. Yeah. <laughs> so it's almost time for us to go. So I just want to say thanks. This is the end of 2014. This is our last show for this year. and um, We have many we'll, things in store. Well, yes, we have yeah. a lot of things in store coming up. We have Sue Chi coming up. We have some folks from the Smart Train. We have Becoming Independent, Anna Maria. Anna Maria will be back, and Roger, Roger. will be back. So yeah. we have the first several months, um, and then the FEMA webinar in September. And so thank you, Richard. Thank thank you, Skip. I really appreciate you. Okay, you too. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Love you.